My brother and I grew up on a bush block a stone's throw away from a river we rarely saw. Our world, for the most part, was a lumpy hodgepodge of paddocks and gardens. There was a small paved section around the house, but beyond that the land was left to its own devices. And so, mostly, were we. Recently my mother reminisced on how exhausting we were to raise. What she stressed the most was the way we would jump and leap, as if that was the only way we knew how to transport ourselves around the house. I wondered, was that a lesson we learned from the wallabies that bounced around the boundaries of our property? Those dark, shy creatures hiding their secrets in the most exuberant and noticeable of movements? And if so, which other animals did we take on as role models in our formative years? Any empty space in the five acres we inherited was an arena for activities and adventures, for play and for games. We would kick or toss balls around, throw sticks or rocks, race, roll, crawl, and go off searching out curiosities in the small, vast world around us. As a result, we both wound up with an innate fitness in the bush. And I mean fit in both senses of the word. Able. And also well matched. We belonged. For most of the past decade, my brother has lived in Europe. Yet I have seen him in the cramped cobblestone alleyways of some city's old quarter, hiking as if through the growth of grasslands. I've had to call out to him, Bucko, we're not in Tassie anymore. But to no avail. It's as though a person's gait is for the most part created by the environment in which they've grown up. I'm sure it's not exclusively the case. But sometimes it seems that it doesn't matter what choices are made later. Our first landscapes foist upon us the postures and gestures we will carry through life. My brother and I were given a lot of space. So we grew up with long legs. Later we moved off the bush block to a smaller property on the edge of Launceston. It was backed by a reserve of mixed woodlands the sort of tract of bush that ultimately I came to realise was a much diminished version of wilderness. Invasive weeds were almost as commonplace as native shrubs, and you could call cooey thrice in a whisper, and half a neighbourhood could hear you, even if they weren't likely to leave their brick homes and come running to help. But such edgelands are still full of promise, and they nevertheless produce vivid pictures for young imaginations. In this bit of native bush blighted with rubbish and suburban runoff, we met with ghosts and talking animals, birds that metamorphosed with the weather, and humans who held sinister plots for us. The psyche's shadow creatures were free to roam in the forest there. It seemed they too sprung up like marsupials out of hiding. But having trained ourselves already, we were up for the task of chasing them. Nowadays I live in a shack on the outskirts of a rural village, a train carriage disconnected from rails and electricity 
and then dumped in the forest. It's fire truck red in colour, yet it's still well hidden from the neighbours. I'm maybe 50 kilometres away from where I was born, if you could travel in the style of a sea eagle, a little bit further by road. And the forest itself is much like those I grew up within or alongside, dominated by eucalyptus species and acacias, and a good variety of prickly shrubbery, a mixed up mess of grey and green. In my adult years I've wandered fairly widely throughout the world, but as you can tell, I haven't strayed so far at all, really. I've been contemplating what I would have made of this property as a child. Suppose it's easy enough to see that I would have burst out the double doors every morning and frightened the plethora of paddy melons who graze on my lawn and face grim terror every time I go outdoors. And I would have watched with interest the flight patterns of fantails and scarlet robins, invited the friendship of the fairy wrens who hop along the porch on a regular basis. In the call of the grey shrike thrush, I might have intuited a surreptitious language as complex and rich as I quickly discovered English was. And had my brother or my cousins been around too, we would have disappeared into the forest behind us, up to the ridge, through the cruel curlicues of the blackberry canes, under an archway of small storm-bent trees to where the big gums with their silver-white bark stand stark and stalwart against darkening skies. No doubt as a kid I'd have also found the abandoned nest burrowed under a fallen trunk. A round hollow about a metre in width, with mysterious green feathers scattered around its vicinity. And we'd have wandered wayward beyond a forgotten fence line, past the big old sawn-off stumps washed with the ash of a fire from decades ago. And we'd have heard a lone dog barking from somewhere in the distance, on the perimeter of this boundless forest and told fresh fables about whose it was and what message it was calling out to us. And with the utmost certainty, I can say that the eucalyptus sapling that grows as a clump of blue-green leaves directly in front of the train carriage would have been an obstacle over which we would have eventually tried to jump. In fact, it's the sort of thing I still do. It strikes me that even now, I mostly travel through the world with leaps and jumps, as if these long legs encourage me. They make me do it. Although I was surrounded by a bush, I was pretty well illiterate when it came to naming what existed around me. I knew gum trees, wattles, man ferns, echidnas, cockatoos, kookaburras. But the rest of the knowledge came much later. 
and I barely saw the species that I could not speak of by name, or so it seems in hindsight. For instance, there's a tree known commonly as prickly box, which is putting out its first fine white flowers in front of me right now. And this tree has been in every forest I ever went in through my childhood. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I remember admiring its bouquet or associating it with the new year. Even more madness. The edible fruit of the cherry ballot, or native cherry, must have sprouted around me every summer, even at eye level yet I don't recall tasting a single one of them until I was 18 or 19 years old. My parents did not work the land or venture out into wild country for any recreational purpose. We infrequently went camping, had a crack at fishing trips only once or twice, and although my family members weren't oblivious to the bush's beauty, I think I can say most of us didn't identify any particular romantic appeal in it, not for a long while. As I've said, for us kids it was a playground, and I suppose that meant that only those species which were immediately of use to our games needed some form of nomenclature. We may never have used the common names for them, only private, esoteric, clandestine names. For example, there was a type of grass that at the onset of summer put out a papery seed pod, pale yellow and oval shaped, with a thin tail straggling off the end of it. We grabbed handfuls of them at a time and threw them at each other. And as far as I'm concerned, this plant, in summer at least, is called bees. There were plants and animals whose names we knew well, though. And those were mostly the ones that had been taught to us as potential threats. Some of them I can see around the train carriage now. Jack jumpers and cutting grass, bull ants and buzzies. Perhaps it's odd the fondness which I feel for each of these. The jack jumpers and bull ants both belong to the same genus of ant, the most lethal in the world, I'm told, since quite a few people have an anaphylactic reaction to the jack jumpers in particular. Every year of my life I have been stung by the ginger pincers of these furious little ants who often act like drunks at closing time. Once, scrambling up a cliff, I put my hand right in a nest and had ten of the little buggers hanging off my palm. But I survived, to write a bush poem about the experience. It would be a disappointing thing, to die from a jack-jumper sting. <laughs> the bull ants deliver a sting which is less fatal but more painful, and the animal itself is a brutal thing of beauty, like a shard of obsidian. I have a bull ant nest directly adjacent to the front porch where I usually eat brekkie. I cannot help but sit mesmerised whenever I see one make its passage across the deck, glinting in the morning light. Cutting grass grows in great hairy tussocks all throughout the forest here, luminous in a shade of lime green. Its long plasticky blades have a sword-like edge that leaves an open wound wherever an unsuspecting hand runs along it. The cut often occurs on the inside of the joints of the finger, a nuisance of a place to have a cut. I currently have one carved into my swirling thumbprint. But still, I love the old cutty. Its leaves have a lovely texture, and they produce an eccentric fuzz of flowers as well as a cache of gorgeous edible brown seeds that look to my eyes like tiny river stones. 
The buzzies are another matter altogether. These curious plants wait for warm weather to produce spherical, psychedelic heads, sometimes the most garish shade of purple, from which grow petalless flowers which look more like scarlet spikes. These are designed to catch the fur of animals, or as it turns out, the socks of humans, in order to disperse the seed around. So often in childhood summers my clothes were caked with broken up chunks of these buzzies, unbeknownst to me till I went to put them in the washing machine. And it is still the case that I am pulling the fibrous bits of them out of my socks after I've gone out for a piss on the grass. Over the years I have gone to great lengths to add more to the list of names I know, to address the plants and creatures around me. But I am still surprised frequently to find familiar figures in the landscape that I cannot name, such as the pink flower that popped up on the lawn recently, hard to miss and yet I've never overheard anyone else name it or noticed it in a flora guide. So there it is. A sudden efflorescence, suggesting that the bush around me is always ready to surprise, always full of secrets. There was another animal I could name in childhood, the sugar ant. You see, I was a bit of a sweet tooth as a boy. And when I was told that it was called a sugar ant, and I saw its amber-coloured thorax, I was sure it would taste like a flake of caramel. Like I say, every ecosystem is ready to explode with surprises. And surprises sometimes teach the most poignant lessons. A sugar ant more or less tastes like formic acid, which you might expect as an adult. I shall never forget the child who addressed me at a rest stop between Tehran and Tabriz. A little girl for whom literature in the style of magical realism came readily. I had noticed her performing handstands and somersaults on a nearby knoll. She had picked wild flowers and tied them into a garland, although the thick black tresses of her hair fell freely all over it. She was about ten years old. Soon enough, she'd be given instructions strictly on how to behave, told how to dress, what to say, and to whom she should speak. She would be watched over by relatives, clerics, police, politicians, and the general public. Everyone around her would have an opinion on how she should portray herself. There would be oh so many restrictions. But for now, she was somewhat free, and for whatever reason, she chose to use her liberty to speak to me. I was crouched over a cup of black tea. The taxi that was taking me to the next city had been spluttering for a while, and the driver had decided to press pause on our journey. 
This was a common enough occurrence, and so I wasn't particularly stressed. The traveller often has no real need to follow a timeline, and like those around me who were anxiously waiting to get back on track so they could return to work or reunite with family. But I was pleased to have the distraction when the little girl came up and talked with me. Are you travelling in that taxi? she asked, pointing her thumb at the broken down vehicle behind me. That's a bad taxi. That taxi's going nowhere. In her imperfectly perfect English, the little girl told me that the problem was that my driver was stupid or too proud. I understood that our issue was that we'd not filled up the radiator with water from a spring we'd passed on our way out of Tabriz. I had indeed seen water gushing from a green hillside, with several cars lined up by it, drivers placing jerry cans against the current. I wondered if that was the spring she'd meant. Her knowledge of mechanics was rudimentary, but I was impressed nevertheless. She explained that the water would have made the inside of the car all sparkly, and so the engine would never get too hot or become noisy, but it would stay the perfect temperature and run smoothly. It was a very special spring, she said. There were fairies in the mountains near here who made sure all the water was given a blessing before it left the ground. And to drink from it was to make yourself strong. And here she pushed her muscles up like a tiny Persian Popeye. The little girl now demanded that I finish my tea, so I swiftly took the last sip. Then she stepped towards me, grabbed my hand and said I should follow her. Look at this, she said, pointing at nothing in particular. The little knoll was dotted with common flowers, and some rocks were scattered upon it. But the girl picked up a rock and it started squirming. It was in fact a tortoise. She thrust that tortoise towards my face. If a tortoise bites your nose, she said, it's good luck. But the tortoise had retracted its head and gone back into its shell. Oh no, the little girl said. You might be sitting here waiting for a taxi for a long, long time. She started singing and dancing, and then leaned backwards, bending like rubber and arching her spine so that her hands touched the ground. She flipped over her body, sprung off her fingertips, and landed on her feet again. Then she told me that someday she'd be on television. She described a show that sounded like it could have been called Iran's Got Talent. In front of its cameras, she would show off all her best somersaults and do the splits. She'd perform cartwheels and contort her body into crazy shapes. And when she was interviewed and asked why she'd learned to do all these things, she would say she'd done it to prove that Iranian girls are intelligent and tough, that they can do anything. I'm telling you this just in case you don't see it, she said. But you should really be watching. We were interrupted by the honk of a car horn. It wasn't my taxi, that's for sure. But the little girl was being beckoned back to the rest stop by her dad. We bade each other farewell 
and I returned to the tea stall and ordered another cuppa. I wondered how much of her personality they'd later coerce her into repressing. How much of a struggle she'd have trying to be a brave woman in a culture that didn't give much opportunity for such expressions of boldness. I suspected that her courage wouldn't easily be crushed. That she wouldn't let people cramp her style too much. She had become too familiar with magic. She'd swallowed water from the spring that had been blessed by fairies after all. As I waited for my ride, I imagined my new friend walking on her hands down a main street in Tehran, wandering along the busy boulevard of Valiasar, flipping up onto her feet, and half gymnast, half mechanic, fixing the engine of a truck before skipping through traffic towards the El Bordas Mountains. But maybe that was the most unlikely fairy tale of them all. It seems that times are tough for girls like her, with millions of people waiting in the wings to tell her how and who she was supposed to be. It would take some stubbornness to stick it out. How long do we keep a clear view of ourselves as children before the vision is obscured by so many outside opinions? If I was a child here, in summer, I would always wish to have companions with whom I could play cricket. Though it's a little uneven and pockmarked with marsupial snout holes, the yard in front of the train carriage would be good enough as a grassy wicket, and there's ample room to swing and slash at poorly pitched deliveries, to tonk them into thickets of prickly shrubs. And then the fun begins. For in my childhood a great many treasures were found when the tennis ball went into some deep section of the garden. Mysterious things lived where the branches bifurcated on the trunks of certain bushes. And when you eventually found the object you were looking for, you'd emerge smelling of whatever pungent greenery you'd entered, with twigs and leaves throughout your hair like some prize-winning athlete of the ancient games. This was after all how my cousin came face to face with a tiger snake, tracking a ball that had gone into the gorse in the outfield. One of the greatest encounters I can remember from those years, although none of the adults actually believed him when he told them that it had happened. Apart from that, you might find birds' nests, burrows or bits of garbage, an old bottle, or best of all, a tennis ball from several seasons ago. From such miscellanies, whole worlds can be made in childhood. Stories could be told that would swell and bulge in the retelling. No wonder they thought my cousin was telling porkies. We always did. Much of childhood takes place at this lower level. 
Parents must be frequently warned about this. Children are aware of the secrets of a stratum below what they can see, giving them all sorts of advantages. Adults with their eyes so far from the ground look frequently ahead, which, yes, can be helpful when it comes to contemplating the future and making plans, etc. But a kid's face is mostly in the dirt, and subsequently they can gain the trust of the creatures of the earth and intuit the mysteries which make up the baseline of the food chain. In some way their skills have been much better suited to the chaos of the past year. But it can create problems, this discrepancy of vision. When I was a kid I started filling the exhaust pipe of Mum's Holden Gemini with gravel. Took a long time to work out why I was in so much trouble. To me it was just a harmless game. Here at the train, at that height, there'd be plenty to find. I almost never look under there, but the carriage is raised from the ground on brick plinths. I know that it's used as a thoroughfare by paddy melons and echidnas, but who knows what else might rest there throughout the day while I do my work just above them. The marsupials have bolt holes in the scrub, hurriedly made corridors that they've rounded out with their bodies. These two warrant a further look. And I have found in the woods around me sections of a cow's skeleton, including its skull fuzzed with moss. And there are convict bricks and archaic farm tools hidden out there too, covered in forest debris. And most fascinating, I suspect, would be a childhood study of insects. And this is a great property for entomological exploration, I've never lived anywhere with such a diverse array of bugs, beetles, wasps and flies. In the past few days alone I've seen some of the weirdest animals I've ever witnessed. There was something like a tiny thorny devil wrapped in a black and orange guernsey. And then a long thin grub came repelling off a eucalyptus, swinging on an invisible silk thread. A grotesque caterpillar fell on me as well. All horns and spikes, it was disguised as part of a prickly shrub, but out of the leaves, it looked more like a miniature dinosaur. I'm not sure if I'll ever have children of my own. If not, I'll rest assured that my life will be a fair bit simpler. But I'll also know that in some respects, it will be impoverished for not having had the interpretations of children as part of my daily routine. Kids see more miracles, I guess. And their strange quips, those ideas which seem to have no logical sequence, must contribute plenty to the world's body of poetry, even if they don't get acknowledged that often. I reckon most children combine their smallness, flexibility and curiosity to create a perspective that's useful to all of us. They are often funny, irreverent, imaginative and compassionate, caring little comedians. Or to think about it in a slightly different way, they're much like another mystifying species of insect for the entomologist's catalogue. And like all those other weird bugs we might come across, they're well worth trying to understand.
Any child who wakes in the bush in the middle of the night senses that their surrounds are full of jostling forces. Spirits and beings that are barely suppressed beneath an unseen surface waiting to explode. Then it comes. The blood-curdling shriek of a possum. Or the sudden honks and squawks of a flock of insomniac narky hens. In this instance, there is no return to ordinary dreams. Instead, the mind is made into a labyrinthine forest, and the child must contend with what might emerge from the narrow gaps between the trees, or what will come swooping out of the branches. This forest goes on forever, and the journey through it loops back on itself, returning us to the same tracks that we started out upon at what seemed to be the beginning of our lives. Eventually it will be morning, and the forest will jingle with bird calls as if the sparkling of starlight has converted into sound. That child will race out onto the grass with bare feet, braving prickly plants and biting insects, knowing that the scars they bring fade quickly and can easily be put up with. What is more important is that life's abundance, which is blatantly obvious to any child, is taken into their hands as swiftly and as often as possible. As if it might run out. To miss that would be felt like a keen pain, perhaps for a whole lifetime. Pain, though, is a part of life, one of its prominent overlapping patterns. There are the insect stings, the splinters, the split lips, the stubbed toes, the sporting injuries, the dog bites, the fist fights. Once my brother chased me through the house. I tried to escape his grasp by stepping onto a glass table and leaping off, of course. But the glass broke beneath my feet. It's a miracle we survived. I mean that any of us live through childhood should be thought of as a wonder of one or another kind. In scraping through like this, though, we learn to fear. Now, fear is a helpful trait. One should be afraid of being impaled on daggers of fractured glass. But it also has its dark edge. Fear can take over our emotional systems like yeast kneaded through dough. In the same way, sorrow is an inescapable part of childhood too, and disappointment, and regret. But all of these can mutate in the body and become terror or shame, just like too much sunlight in your younger years can later convert into cancer. Some people have shocking childhoods. Mine was hardly traumatic. But it's interesting how much trouble you pick up over the years either way. I'm still sorting through the list of doubts and anxieties that I acquired as a kid. As it is with the flowers and the birds, I'm finding that I need to learn to name these. It's equally the task of a lifetime, to become an expert on my own mind and emotions. And it can be tedious and tiresome work. But actually of late, 
I've been enjoying the exploration and examination of the forest of myself. I feel like some adventurous scientist from the past, an Alfred Russell Wallace in my own existence, tracing the evolution of my thoughts, going backwards and surmising what tiny critters have evolved into the Komodo dragons of my deepest disorders. An ancient philosopher, Jesus of Nazareth, said that we should let kids clamber and crawl all over us, or something to that effect. He suggested that children have a wisdom that we might need to use as a model as we get older. Jesus didn't say anything specific about other creatures, but I would add my own postscript here. Let moths alight on your knuckles, let skinks curl around your toes, let green spiders into your hair. If you wish to inherit the earth, remember that it currently belongs to worms. Remember to look at what's below your eye level, you adults who are always scanning the horizon for more distant dangers and opportunities. Yesterday evening I remembered the childhood pastime of chasing after tadpoles. On dusk, I went to the dam behind the train carriage and saw the throngs of black baby frogs kicking about. But then I heard a sneeze. Curious, I looked through the reeds and saw that it was, of course, a platypus slurping its way through the water. Surprises emerge everywhere. And as we grow older, it seems that only at our brightest moments do we make the effort to open ourselves up to them. And on those occasions, we're as cluey as the kids that we once were.